and welcome to the Destiny Church Podcast. We trust that this will be a great encouragement to you and build your faith. Enjoy today's message. Again, I want to welcome everyone this morning, especially our online audience. Thank you for joining us this morning. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Anthony. I have the privilege of being on staff here. And one of the things I always like to do is anytime I have the opportunity to communicate to you guys is I want to honor our lead pastors, Pastor Chad and Pastor Tasha. And this week, Pastor Tasha's in the room with us, and um, she has been working overtime to get ready for Embrace. Ladies, you don't want to miss it. If, uh, is there any seats left? Very few seats left. So if you're going to sign up, today's the day. For all you last-minute people, today is the day. Get signed up for Embrace. You don't want to miss it. And as John said, Pastor Chad, he is in Africa right now, and they're ministering over there. So be praying for him and his team with Steve and Dolph. Be praying for them as they get ready to travel back this week and, of course, as they finish up what they are doing over there. So uh, this week we are continuing in our series titled, Royals. And the idea behind this series has been that we would have kingdom-driven families. And of course, this stems from our theme for the entire year, which is Kingdom Co. That we would be a company of kingdom-minded people living out kingdom-driven lifestyles. And Jesus himself taught extensively on the kingdom. All throughout the New Testament, even in the Gospels and in, into Paul's letters, we see the kingdom, something that is often talked about, but it is Jesus who most prominently talked about it. Most of those teachings come from Jesus. In fact, Jesus mentions the, the kingdom 126 times throughout the Gospels. So if the kingdom was something that was that important and vital to the teachings of Jesus, then it goes really without saying that the kingdom should be important to us as well. And so one of the things that we have found in this series and through our theme for the year is that when we talk about kingdom, it's not so much about realm as it is about reign. When we talk about kingdom, it's about whose rule and who is Lord rather than a physical location. So understanding that, understanding that when we talk about kingdom, that is about reign, that through our, our part of this, our goal is that we would understand our role and where we fit within this topic of kingdom. And we have found that if, as a church family, if we want to experience God's kingdom here on earth, it ultimately starts in our homes. It has to start in our homes, having kingdom-focused mentalities and living out kingdom-driven principles so that we would experience kingdom benefits and kingdom manifestations within our lives and, of course, within the body of Christ. So today, we are actually going to dive into one key aspect of the kingdom, because we want to ensure that we are equipping ourselves to better be suited and prepared to live that kingdom co, that kingdom company, home life, church life, work life, and then, of course, everything else in between. And I truly believe that after today's message, if you will take it to heart, if you'll take it to heart and apply it in your life, then the kingdom-driven life that we have been seeking for and praying for throughout this series will begin to manifest itself in you and in your homes and in your families. And then your family will draw closer to Christ and you would begin to see those kingdom benefits manifest in your life and in your family's life. So as we dive into this, who here is familiar with Charlie Brown? Right? Maybe you've seen the comics, you've seen the Christmas special, you know, the great pumpkin patch, Charlie Brown. Maybe you've seen all of that. Most of us, I think, are familiar with Charlie Brown. 
And so most of us here are familiar with this friend, Linus, right? Linus was his friend that carried around that little blue blanket with him everywhere he went. What do we call that? That's a security blanket, right? Well, my wife, Carrie and I, we have four kids, and we have never had that privilege of having that child that needed a security blanket or, you know, that stuffed animal or whatever it is that they carried around with them everywhere. They've had their favorite toys. They've had, you know, the toy they slept with and things like that, but they've never had needed that, like that security blanket. I don't know. Some of you may have had that. Maybe as when you were kids, you needed that security blanket, that stuffed animal that had to be with you all the time. Maybe you've experienced that, or maybe your kids have had that, but, um, what is the purpose of those? Why is it that the kids carry those around, these security blankets? What's the, what is it that they offer? It's protection, right? For whatever reason, these items offer some sense of imagined protection to the point that um, if there's some reason to be afraid or to be scared, that this item is going to offer the protection that they need, right? But really, if you think about it, it's more of an imagined protection. These items don't truly offer the protection necessary to defend against any real threat, right? And so, but what we don't realize as we think about this idea of kids and their security blankets is we associate it with our kids. But what we may not realize is that we as adults, we can do this exact same thing. We use our jobs, our relationships, our money, our social status, we, numerous different things to act as a security blanket of sorts that we lean into and that we hold on to and believe that they will offer us protection and security to fend off attacks of the spiritual enemy when reality, just like the security blanket, these things will always fall short of offering the true protection we need when those attacks do come. So the question is, if it's not those things, if it's not our jobs, our money, our relationships, our social status, none of that, then what is it that we are to be holding on to and holding close to us that is going to offer us the protection that we need when we face trials and uncertainty? Well, that's the question that we're here to answer today. That's what we're going to look at. So before we do, I want to pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word that's in front of us. We're thankful for what you've already done in this service we ask that you would open our hearts for us to receive what you would have for us today. Can be clear as I, de- as I deliver your word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Nehemiah chapter 4 is where we're going to start today. So as we dive into this, if you've got your Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. By the way, I know we've got the Bible in the sky on the screens up there. And I know a lot of us use our Bibles on our phones and stuff like this. But I encourage you, bring a Bible to church. Bring your notebook. Bring a journal. There's just something about opening these pages and flipping through them that just seems to have a little extra power to it. So I encourage you, if you've not brought your Bible, be bringing those, especially after today's message. It'll maybe make a little, little more power for you. Um, so as we're diving into Nehemiah chapter 4, I want to give you some background and some context on who Nehemiah was and what was going on in his life. So Nehemiah lived during this time following um, Babylon's Um, they came rolling into Judah and into Jerusalem and Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, killed many of the Jews, but then took what was left and took them into exile into Babylon. And the Jews were in um, captivity for 70 years. Now, but during this time, the Babylonian empire was actually actually conquered by the Medo-Persian empire under Cyrus the Great. 
And so when Cyrus the Great came in and he took over, now the Medo-Persians have control of Babylon and they have control of Jerusalem. And what he allows is he gives a decree that allows the Jews, some of the exiles, to go back and be, begin rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. And so that's where we find Nehemiah in the story. Cyrus the Great is gone. There's been a few other kings. It's been 95 years now since Cyrus gave that decree, and now he is serving as cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes of the Medo-Persian Empire. And so that's where we pick up this story. Now, Nehemiah is inquiring, how is that going? It's been 95 years. How's the rebuilding going? He's expecting there's been at least some progress, right? But if we look at Nehemiah 1.3, it says this. They said to me, this is the report he gets back from his brothers. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, keep in mind, it's not that they've begun rebuilding and they've gotten redestroyed again. This is the exact same condition that Nebuchadnezzar had left Jerusalem in. He had come in, destroyed the walls, and burned the city gates. So in this time frame, at the time they were in 70 years of captivity, and now this 95 years that Cyrus had given a decree for them to go back, nothing has changed. And obviously this grieves Nehemiah. He is obviously upset. So he begins to pray and ask for favor from the king. And if you were here last week, I actually kind of mentioned this um, a little bit about him praying and seeking favor. But there was a reason why he was seeking favor of the king. Because as I said, he was a cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes. Now, I think a lot of times what happens when we hear this topic of cupbearer, we immediately think of that they're the ones who taste the drink and the food to make sure everything's good for the king. You know, they're taking that risk for the king. But what you may not realize is that is actually a very important role within the governmental structure, especially of the Medo-Persian Empire. Because if you're the cupbearer and you're testing the drink and the food, you want to make sure it's good before you even test it, right? So they were actually in charge of the entire pipeline from, the plate, from where it was grown to the packaging to the shipping all the way to Walmart grocery store. They were in charge of all of it through the cooking process. So they had a very important role to make sure everything was good as far as the food goes. And so he would also been a source of counsel for the king, and he also served as the king's personal bodyguard. So this would have been no small ask for him to go, hey, can I go back and help them rebuild the city? And so, of course, he prays. The king does allow him to go back and help rebuild the city. So we're going to fast forward. That's really chapters one and two of Nehemiah. Now, fast forwarding to chapter four, this is where now they've begun rebuilding the city, and they're met with some opposition along the way. And so to, to defend against that opposition, Nehemiah instructs the people to make sure they are always on guard while working. And so we pick up Nehemiah 4, 21 and 23. It says, we worked early and late from sunrise to sunset, and half the men were always on guard. I also told everyone living outside the walls to stay in Jerusalem. That way, they and their servants could help with guard duty at night and work during the day. During this time, none of us, not I, nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor the guards who were with me, ever took off our clothes. We carried our weapons with us at all times, even when we went for water. Now catch what it says there in verse 23. They never took off their clothes, and they never dropped their weapons. They carried their weapons with them at all times. Even when just going for some water, even when they just went to go get something to drink, they carried their weapons with them. So what's it saying? 
It's saying that they were always prepared for that attack. They were always prepared for that opposition, which is an important lesson for us and really the key thing that we need to understand for this entire message today. And that is we should always be ready for an attack from the enemy. But in our case, in our case, our enemy isn't in the physical sense that Nehemiah faced where, he, where it was people deterring him from building a wall. Our enemy, of course, is spiritual, and he's trying to keep us from building the one thing that he cannot withstand, and that is the kingdom of God. And families and churches built on foundations and principles of a heavenly kingdom. That is what the enemy is trying to keep us from building. So if we're going to be successful in defending against the enemy and his attacks, we always need to be ready. And one way we can ensure that we are ready is in our worldview. And you're like, worldview? What do you mean by worldview? Let me put it this way. Our worldview is how we make sense of the world around us. And a major problem within our churches and within our families is we have allowed the world to shape our views rather than allowing God's word to shape our views. In other words, we need to have a biblical worldview. So let me put it this way. Maybe this will make a little more sense for you. A biblical worldview is when we filter our view of the world through a lens of scripture rather than filtering scripture through a lens of the world. Think about that. A biblical worldview is when we filter our view of the world through a lens of the Bible rather than filtering the Bible through a lens of the world. So let me give you some examples. Because we often, we can hear phrases and different sayings, and they can even sound good. They may come from a stage, they may come from a teacher or a pastor, and they may sound good. It may even sound biblical when they're not. The question is, how do we distinguish what is truth and what isn't? How do we determine our viewpoint. Let me start with this one. God works in mysterious ways. This is a statement we've probably all heard at some point, right? Is it biblical? Short answer, yes. This one, while those exact words are not in the Bible, the principle is there, right? Those words, by the way, in case you're wondering, they're actually from an opening line of a poem titled Light Shining Out of Darkness by William Cowper. But the idea that God works in mysterious ways is found all throughout Scripture. There are plenty of verses that speak to the mystery of God and how His ways are unknowable to man. One example, Romans eleven thirty four: Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor? And I think most of us are familiar or have heard Isaiah 55, 8, and 9. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Now, I started with that example to show that not all that we hear is wrong or bad. We need to understand that. But how did we determine whether it was good or bad? We use scripture to verify that it was a biblical worldview rather than just a view of this world. So let me give you another one. Who's heard this? God helps those who help themselves. While it sounds good, right? And it even is inspirational. It may even look good on that motivational poster with a cat hanging from a tree. But is it biblical? No. It stands in stark contrast to what scripture truly says. One example, Psalm 18:6. But in my distress, I cried to the Lord. Not my strength, not my success. In my distress, I cried to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to God for help. 
He heard me from his sanctuary. My cry to him reached his ears. The truth is this. God does not demand strength. He gives it to us when we are weak. He doesn't require our maximum effort before he extends grace or help to you. The one thing he requires is that you trust him. That's it. Another one similar to this. God will never give you more than you can handle. Who's heard that one? Is it biblical? Again, no. But we use phrases and words like this, right, to try and comfort one another because the world has taught us that a God worth worshiping would never do such a thing. And they use verses like Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes everything to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And they say, see, God won't let anything bad happen. And they sell that as a truth. And then when something bad does happen, they say, see, I told you, God can't be trusted. There's no reason to have faith in him or even believe in him. And that's what the world is good at. That you're taking scripture and filtering it through what the world thinks is good and right and moral, rather than taking scripture and filtering the world through it. But the truth is, it's always been this way. The enemy's tactics have never changed. The enemy who is working over time to keep us from experiencing kingdom and living as a company of kingdom-driven people and kingdom-minded families has always done this. His methods have never changed. And this is why, this is why knowing the truth of God's word and having a biblical worldview is crucial to us developing a kingdom culture here on earth. The enemy's methods, again, they've never Changed. He is always trying to twist our worldview and attempt to pull us away from the truth of God's word and to separate us from God. So what I want to do is I want to take a look at a point in Jesus' life when he went through this exact same thing, when he was attacked by the enemy in the same way, a moment in his life when he was at his weakest physically. And see, most of us, I think we know this story. We've heard this story. It's when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the desert after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. That story is found in Matthew chapter four, and we're going to look at verses one through 11. And it says this in verse one, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. Again, notice Jesus here is at a very weak state physically and vulnerable to attack. And during that time, this is verse three, during that time, the devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not, must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan. Come on, how many of us need to just say that in our house? Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away and the angels came and took care of Jesus. So in this story, we find Jesus confronted by Satan and Satan attacks Jesus with three different statements. So let's break down each of these three attacks that Satan uses. First attack comes in verse three. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. 
Satan's first attack is on Jesus' appetite. His first attack was on Jesus' lust of the flesh, his appetite. In this moment, Jesus was very hungry, as it said in verse 2. His flesh desired to be fed. Satan's first attack was to meet the fleshly desires of Jesus. And in the same way, Satan will work as hard as he can in order to lie to us in a moment, tell us that something is good, and that by fulfilling the desire of our flesh, we will be satisfied. First attack is appetite. Second attack, verse six, if you are the son of God, jump off. He will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Satan's second attack was an appeal. He appealed to Jesus' identity. Satan was telling Jesus that because of who he was, he would be protected. He was appealing to Jesus's identity. And in the same way, Satan will lie to us and tell us that who we are and what we do is ultimately what matters most. He's appealing to our pride and our identity. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that your identity in Christ is in who you are or what you do or even what you accomplish for him. Our identity is not found in those things. It's in whose we are, not who we are. Final attack, verse nine. I will give it all to you if you kneel down and worship me. First attack was appetite. Second was appeal. Third attack is on authority. Who are we submitting to? Are we fully submitted to the kingdom of God or are we willing to look at the world around us and all it has to offer and submit our authority to it? Our entire theme for the year, Kingdom Co. begs this very same question. It's about reign, not realm. Whose authority and reign are we submitted to? The kingdom of this world has a lot to offer, has a lot to offer. And when we decide, catch this, when we decide that what it offers is better than what the kingdom of God offers, then we are falling prey to Satan's third attack and giving in, and we are bowing to him and giving him authority rather than submitting to the authority of Christ in his kingdom. Don't fall into that attack. Do not fall prey to it. So looking at all three of these attacks, appetite, appeal, authority, we notice something critically important in how Jesus was able to overcome these subtle attacks by Satan. What do I mean by subtle? Like, it didn't really seem subtle. But all three attacks, they actually looked good on the surface. Jesus was hungry. Food would have been good. The scriptures say in Psalm 91 that his angels will protect him. No lie there. That was absolutely true. And what Satan offered to Jesus in that third attack would eventually be his anyway. It was already promised to be his. Satan was just offering a shortcut to get there. What Satan was offering wasn't inherently bad, especially from an unbiblical worldview, but it wasn't what God wanted for his son. And Jesus knew that because he had a strong biblical worldview and understanding of scripture. Let's look back at Satan's second attack. Satan quoted, as I said, Psalm 91. And yet Jesus understood how Satan was twisting it. The point was that God would ensure that Jesus would complete the mission he came to earth to accomplish. 
Satan is suggesting, what Satan is suggesting is that the Father is promising that Jesus can't be hurt under any circumstance. So what Satan is proposing is that Jesus tests God's promise. Hence Jesus' response. You must not test the Lord your God. In all three attacks, in all three of Jesus' responses, there's one thing we must take notice of. In all three responses, Jesus quotes Scripture. In fact, all three of them came from the book of Deuteronomy. His first response was Deuteronomy 8.3. His second one came from Deuteronomy 6.16, and the last one was from 6.13. In the midst of difficulty and weakness and temptation, Jesus clung to the one thing that would protect him and help him overcome any attack of the enemy, God's word. God's word. So going back to what I talked about early, earlier with the security blanket, the things that we hold on to, like our jobs, our money, our relationships, our social status. Rather than clinging to the one thing we should be clinging to, God's word. But yet, how oftentimes do we rely on those other things? When a moment of weakness, when we're tried, we, we, go, we go talk to somebody or we go, well, I can buy myself out of this one or whatever it looks like. Or hide behind kids when your marriage is struggling, right? So before we go any further, before I kind of wrap all of this up, one thing I want to do at this point, it's kind of out of the order of kind of what we normally do things, is I want to talk to those who have yet to place your faith in Christ. Because what we've really talked about today, it only applies to the believer. Because until you have faith in Christ, without faith, the only thing we have to place our hope and trust in is in the things of this world. We only have our relationships, our jobs, our money, our social set. We only have those things. And those are the things that will always leave us prone to the enemy and ultimately leave us unfulfilled and without hope. So before we continue, I want to give anyone here who has not accepted Christ and is ready to become a part of God's kingdom that can offer the true peace and comfort from the things of this world and that false sense of security, I want to give you that opportunity today. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, if that's you in this room today, we're going to say a prayer. And we're going to pray this all together. We don't do anything alone here at Destiny Church. I want everyone to repeat this prayer. But if this is you and you have never accepted Christ and you're believing with faith in your heart that you're accepting Christ today, let's, let's pray this prayer. Say, Dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I repent today of my sins. Accept me, accept me into your kingdom today. And from this day forward, I submit my authority to you and to your kingdom. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. If that was you today and you said yes to Jesus for the first time in that seat pocket in front of you, you'll find a card that says, I have decided. Take a second as we wrap up and close out today. Take a second, fill that out. And then you can take it out to our welcome table after service. And um, there'll be somebody there that can give, they'll give you a Bible. They can answer some questions for you because we want to come alongside you and we want to help you in that journey and with your walk with Christ. So as I said, 
as I kind of wrap all this up, I want to give some practical steps for us to be ready for when the attacks come. And they will come. The attacks are going to come. Remember what I talked about? The world's going to tell you, oh, no, if you accept Christ, everything's good after that. That is a lie from the enemy. (laughs) I can tell you, it's going to have ups and downs, mountains and valleys. They're going to come. It's not a matter of if, but when. And Satan is always trying to bring us to a point where we are reliant on this worldly kingdom rather than the kingdom of God. And as we noted earlier, Jesus gave us the example on how to defend against those attacks. It's through the power of God's word. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And Ephesians 6.17 tells us that we are to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And that, that passage in Ephesians 6, we find Paul telling us to put on the whole armor of God, that our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So looking back at our story in Nehemiah at the end of chapter four, they never removed their clothes or dropped their weapons. They never removed their armor or put down their swords. They were always ready for the attack. And in the same way, in this exact same way, we always need to be ready to never remove our armor, to never sit down our sword, the word, the word of God. Now to clarify, am I saying that we need to pick this thing up, put it under our arm and walk around with it everywhere we go? Is that what I mean by never putting down our sword? No, that's not what I mean. So how do we hold on? If that's not it, if we don't just carry it everywhere we go, how do we hold on and never put it down? By hiding it in our heart. We hide it in our heart to know it and be ready to use it whenever necessary. So the last thing, before I wrap all this up, I want to give us four practical steps to ensure that we always have our swords ready, that we are equipped and ready whenever the attacks do come. Step one, this is going to seem like an obvious one. Read it. Seems obvious, right? But you would be amazed at the number of Christians who the only time they ever read or hear God's word is here on a Sunday morning and it's on that screen. Church, we have to be in the word and reading it. If we're going to know what it says and be ready, because sometimes... Sometimes, just like when Satan attacked woman in the garden, Satan's attack is simply going to be, did God really say? It can be that simple. Satan will test you to see what you know or think you know about God's word, which leads to the second point. First, you have to read it. Second point is you got to study it. It's not enough to just read God's word. We need to read it and understand it. I want to talk on this story just for just a second about woman in the garden. Because if you pay attention to that story, there's one very important detail. The enemy starts off with, did God really say? And if you look at woman's response, what was God's instruction? You may not eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. If you eat it, you will surely die. 
Woman's response when the enemy said, did God really say? She missed two very important points. The first one I'll point out is she kind of lessened the consequence. And it may seem trivial, but if you notice, she said, we may not eat it or touch it or we will die. God said, you will surely die. And why that's a critical detail? Because what was Satan's response after she said that? You will not surely die. It's almost like she didn't really understand the consequence. But then notice what I said a second ago. What was the woman's response? You may not eat it or touch it. God never said she couldn't touch it. So think about the process that that goes through when now a woman's going, okay, maybe the enemy's right. Before she ever takes a bite of that fruit, what does she have to do? Touch it. In that moment, has anything changed for her? No. Has she sinned? No. But in her mind, she has, because she didn't fully understand God's word. And in that moment, she realizes, oh, the enemy might be right. Did God really say? Be careful. We have to know and understand because there are many people who will fall trap to Satan's attacks because of a misunderstanding of what God's word truly meant. We see that in Satan's second temptation of Jesus. On the surface, what Satan said seemed like a legitimate truth, but Jesus understood the meaning and therefore was able to defend against it using other scripture. And so what this can lead to, what a lack of study can lead to, is the belief or the confusion that there are contradictions in scripture. And while reading the Bible is a good thing, reading it just to check off a box and not going the next step in gaining understanding leaves us open to those subtle attacks Satan will use in trying to get us to rely on this kingdom rather than leading our families to have a kingdom of God mindset and rely on his promises. So step one, you got to read it. Step two, we got to study it. Step three, we have to teach it. As we grow in our relationship with Christ and in the knowledge of his word, there is the expectation that we would teach it to those around us, but even more specifically, our family and our kids. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through all of the scriptures that point to us teaching and instructing our children, but there, because there are many, but just a couple. First is Isaiah 54, 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. Want peace for your children? Want your children to experience peace? Teach them the word. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You shall teach them Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Parents, how many of us are spending time teaching our kids? Jesus invited children to sit at his feet to be taught. I think oftentimes what we do is we throw verses out like, honor your father and mother when they disobey or question us, and we call that teaching. If we are going to be like Christ, we need to have them at our feet and be teaching them. And maybe that's at the kitchen table at dinner, or maybe you have a specific time set aside for those moments. But we are called as parents throughout Scripture to be teaching and instructing our children kingdom principles and instruction. 
So step one, read it. Step two, study it. Three, teach it. Final step, step four, pray it. Pray scripture over your kids. This is taking it that one more step. And maybe you don't have kids or your kids are grown up. Still pray for them. Or if you're still a kid, you're a young person in the room, pray for your parents. Pray scripture over your grandkids. Pray scripture over those you love. Because when we begin to do this, we are aligning ourselves with God and praying his will over them. Let me give you an example. How many of you in here have at least one young man in your family, whether it's a son, a brother, cousin, grandson, even just a family friend you're close to and they have a young man in their family? Doesn't really matter relationship to you, but any young man, listen to this, Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Be praying for the young men in your life that they would stay pure by guarding their hearts with the word. Simple prayer. It's a simple prayer, but can have eternal ramifications for the young men in your life. Pray scripture over your kids. Be praying over everyone in your life, but especially our children, because they need, they need every protection that they can get. Every protection. So to sum it all up, here's the challenge. Title of today's message is the fight all families face. It's the fight all families face to be a kingdom-driven family. That's what the whole point of this series, Royals, has been about, kingdom-driven families. So always be ready. Never remove your armor. Never set aside your sword. Because in order to be kingdom-driven families in a kingdom-driven church, then we have to honor God's word and his authority, remembering that the kingdom is not about realm, it's about reign. And one way we can ultimately submit to his reign and his authority is through our worldview. Are we filtering the world through a lens of scripture, or are we simply taking the world, what the world gives us and hoping for the best? I can assure you, though, if you're filtering the world through a lens of scripture, and you are reading, studying it, teaching it, and praying God's word in your life and in your family's life, then we will be equipped to bring about kingdom results, kingdom benefits, and the kingdom manifestations in our church, in our communities, and most importantly, in our homes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word and the power that it has in our lives. God, my prayer is that today, as we leave here today, as we go on with our lives, that this wouldn't be just something that we hear on a Sunday morning and then walk out and forget. That we would take this to heart, that we would put the word in our heart, that we'd be reading and studying and teaching and praying it in our lives so that we can experience your kingdom in our church and in our families. God, we're so thankful for what you're doing in the families here at Destiny Church. Through this series and through this theme for this year, God, there's a lot going on in our world today that seems bleak and hopeless 
and the world just seems lost. But our faith is not of this world. Our faith is in your kingdom. And we are so thankful for that kingdom. We're so thankful for you that we can place our faith in you and submit our authority to your kingdom. The kingdom that will ultimately give us protection and peace and hope. Jesus, we love you. It's your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. Special thanks to those of you who give to this ministry. It's because of you that this ministry is possible. You can check out the link in the description to give or visit destinychurch.me slash give. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. We love you and have a blessed week.